As retailers entered the lockdown in March 2020, a small, diverse group of Canadian thought leaders gathered to virtually speculate, collaborate, and share their insights on the waves of disruption facing retailers. The Business of Retail podcast emerged as an unflinching strategic alternative to the conventional discourse, revealing challenges in the headlines and exploring new, unconventional paths for all facets of the retail industry. Now, here's the panel. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Retail podcast, where we explore the nuances of retailing with a diverse point of view, from supply chain management to global leadership, product, branding, sales, and marketing. We bring a Canadian point of view with a global perspective. Each episode focuses on providing valuable resources and insights that are critical to every modern retailer with some special guests along the way. You can find out more about us on our website at www.thebusinessofretail.ca or on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at The Business of Retail, or you can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, etc. We are joined today by our usual crew, George Minakakis, David Ian Gray, Gary Newbery, Craig Patterson, and myself, Christine Cowan. And our topic today is the cost of consumer acquisition, which part of it counts? It costs five times as much to attract a new consumer than it does to keep an existing one. And a focus on consumer retention is critical now as brands need to focus on building a long-term relationship with their consumers. So I'm gonna start off by passing it on to David. Well, that's only because, you know, I got fired up about this earlier off off uh, line because I think we live in a world where uh, there's just such an over-focus, complete over-focus on customer acquisition. And it may have come from the fact that looking at online uh, native brands had to start with zero customers. And we saw brands and influencers start from zero to 10 to 100 in exponential growth. That was new customer acquisition. But any business needs some of those people, a good chunk of those people to come back a second time. And it seems like this fixation on customer acquisition as the overriding metric negates that or at least diminishes that and kind of presumes we just keep gathering one-time buyers and we'll be fine eventually somehow. So you're, I agree with you, but the challenges are, is how do you, how do you attract those customers, right? Every business now needs to attract more customers to their base. You know, and I have to say that when you look at brands like, Nike and Lululemon, you know, they're, they're social channels onto themselves, right? So they have a huge following and they have a, a very strong competitive advantage versus a lot of other retailers or other brands out there that need to fight hard to attract customers. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, there's a whole bunch of planning that needs to happen. Um, and I'm going to call it the old days when you had reach and frequency were really important in marketing. Does anybody remember that, by the way? I'm curious well, quite often if anyone does. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, the, it's all that planning that needs to go in. So that, but reach is still uh, a challenge, but you have all these channels to, to try to do it through. Um, but, the, but I think it falls apart um, because I don't think we've differentiated enough between, you know, looking to try and get customers, um, acquire customers to make them loyal to a brand and we're, I think there's too much of a focus on trying to drive digital marketing as a weapon 
um, to, to get more likes and followers and views. And while that's important, those are good metrics and important to understand, I think we, we get lost in that. And when you start looking at the cost of this, you know, you look at startups, um, they're telling you 30 to 50% of revenue to build that customer base. That's substantial. Unless you've got, um, you know, an angel, be an investment angel behind you or a, a large private equity firm says who's backing you up. I don't know how you can do this successfully. So George, let's stay on that for a second. I want you to say that, that metric again, or the, the figure again, because I think there's a notion that using those types of channels is free business, right? And I hear this even today in 2021, I hear that from founders of, of brands that we, we're not going to invest in stores that cost money. We're going we're gonna to just go online, just online. What was that figure again? That, that you're citing the cost of so acquisition. So a, a startup is 30 to 50% of revenue, right? And you a, a, a brand that is trying to dedicate itself to uh, e-commerce and to get through all those, break through all the noise that's out there right now, it could be 15 to 20% of revenue. And, th and that is to make an impact, right? That is to cut through the noise. Uh, if you're thinking of spending... 5% of uh, your total revenue and you're going to break through um, without, without um, uh, promoting a lot of the material that you're, uh, that you're putting out, that's not going to happen. But you, I'm going to back it up a little bit, guys, and just say, don't forget the cost of actually producing all that material too, right? Mm -hmm. There's, that is being outsourced still. There's agencies that are pulling it. To, somebody's got to pull together your marketing campaign, your, your messaging with someone who's going to organize and structure everything that's going to be rolled out to different channels. Um, and then it's an experiment, right? It really is a scientific experiment in terms of which channel is going to trigger that following for your brand. And it takes time to really work through it because you don't know where your ideal customer is at a certain time. Now, social media, you know, they, they have a plethora of data that you can you know, dig deep into. Um, but again, it's not, it's not baked in, it's not carved in stone that you're going to hit a runaway um, campaign. And then there's this whole thing about going viral. Um, you know, everybody wants to go viral, but I can tell you viral does not mean that you're going to hit a sales volume and, and drive traffic. I mean, it's, it's entertainment that got you there, right? And that's how I look at it. So I'm not saying, I'm not going to say that social media is not important. I'm not going to say digital marketing is not important. It is a must, mm -hmm. but getting there, the cost is, up, is, is substantial. And when you think of 20% of your revenue, it's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and growing, right? Like it, the rates online too, uh, Facebook ads, Google ads, they're going up. And uh, I remember uh, the founder, Ethan Song, the founder of um, Frank and, and Oak, uh, on a stage, everyone was sort of glorifying him as the, uh, as the e-com guru, the, you know, the direct to consumer young guys, fashion guru. And he said, I'm, I'm channel agnostic. He said, don't, don't put me in that box. I'll go to stores if that economic model warrants. And it's a matter of the eyeballs, the foot traffic, and then, uh, vis-a-vis -vis the cost that you're, you're putting out. 
And I think that is, it's interesting that the dynamic that's happening online right now, the demand for it, especially through the pandemic, I think is driving the rates up. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I mean, you can't dismiss, we cannot dismiss the, the consumer's uh, adoption of e-commerce and turning to social channels to get information. And that's where they really get uh, bombarded by a ton of messaging. Um, and you know, you're a retailer, or a small independent or a mid-sized one, you don't have the deep pockets that large ones have, uh, trying to break through to the, in that, in that noise is challenging. And when you, and, and I know a cost per click can go from, um, if you don't have, if you don't, if you're not getting enough reach and, or you haven't found the right, um, messaging, you know, that cost per click could be a couple of bucks each, right? I mean, that's. Yeah. That's a lot of money when it, it adds up and when you don't have, or if you don't get the return on investment, right? That it's even worse. So you're back to where you started. Um, I can go on forever with this and we only have 35 minutes or so, but I'll tell you what, I'm also, um, I'm gonna go on not in a different direction, but just to challenge the process a little bit. Um, there's a lot of people out there calling themselves experts in digital marketing. And I don't think all digital marketers are created equal. You know, and I, I really believe that a retailer, regardless of what size they are, they need to do their own due diligence and have a good understanding of what whoever they turn to for help. Um, take a, do do take a ask them to show you the ROI they've achieved with other accounts, because that's what really where it really matters. You know, and, and that's what I'd be asking. Well, I think the life the, the the life cycle of the brand is important too. I, I will acknowledge if you're starting a brand today, then all you will be about is customer acquisition, right? So you're going to have to do whatever you can to get that. But a one-time buyer is not a customer. A one-time buyer just bought from you once. They have good good client of mine taught me that years ago with their customer base, that it's the second time round where they start to view that person as a customer. Mm -hmm. So I think as the brand matures or the retailer matures, then you start getting into that timing when that cycle back should happen. There needs to be a balancing of acquisition with retention. And if you look at the iconic brands, the really good ones, they weren't thinking about those things so much. I think they were thinking about just putting together an awesome solution for people, you know, a great product. And uh, I would, you know, David, ahead. I would argue that like on, you know, you mentioned Lululemon before George, that is a, a company that started um, very much around purpose and a sense of community. And so how they built themselves, I mean, I lived in Vancouver at the time and they had their shop on 4th Avenue. It was having yoga classes, having community um, instructors come in and do classes, having them participate, really very grassroots kind of promotional. And then it was word of mouth. And, you know, really that sort of helped to build it. And I would argue that today I'd use Peloton as a great example of sense of community. I mean, how they have built themselves. And I was an early adopter to Peloton. I've had my bike for a number of years now. And, you know, I was a bit skeptical at first because I was a huge fan of going to spin classes. Now I'm a loyalist. I have the ability to connect with people. I can ride with my friends if I want. I can be a part of a live class if I want. Like that sense of um, community and involvement has really built that brand. And then I think that's why we're seeing brands like Adidas partner with them because the two brands together combined can provide even more um, consumer loyalty, following, et cetera. So that also is something else, even though it's not necessarily 
purely digital related um, definitely has something that brings and draws consumers in because if it's a trusted brand that I know and love and they've partnered with another brand that maybe I don't know, but I know and love and trust them, then I'm going to trust that they're bringing me together great, new, unique. And I think a lot of small and mid-sized brands are doing that right now to kind of get more exposure and bring more um, kind of interest to their brands. And then it's also just the hey, I've tried this product, I love the product, and the ability for people to be on these social networks and communicating amongst themselves is really critical to that consumer buy-in. Because you can send a million ads out there into Instagram and whatever else, and it doesn't necessarily make me want to like be a part of that brand. But if I know someone who's an advocate for the brand, I'm probably a lot more inclined to, to get involved and find out more. Christine, you just said the magic word advocacy yeah. right cross that threshold with peloton right so yeah. i mean they'd have to do a lot of things wrong to turn you away right but yeah. to get to that advocacy level right you have got to tell your brand story over and over again in a very in a very convincing way and have advocates support it right and i think that's yeah. part of the bigger challenge for a lot of startups trying to break through um, and existing businesses that, that where this is fairly, you know, I wouldn't say it's fairly new to them. I was just reading something yesterday that really it wasn't until 2014, by the way, uh, that China allowed mobile, mobile, mobile payments, right? So, I mean, th this whole world of, of e-com that's happening in China is really accelerating the last seven years. And, you know, I think we're, we're seeing, we're going to start seeing this movement as well. But at the same time, all of this digital marketing is going to have to create far more advocacy in order to, to retain customers. Because once you move customers to a social channel, they're going to see a lot of other messaging, right? Mm -hmm. You're placing yourself in, a, in, a, in a, a bit of, my old friend used to say, dangerosity. <laughs> and, and you better be prepared for it. Um, yeah. And I think it's, and then it gets expensive. Back to your earlier points when you started this off, it costs five times as much to get a, a new customer. Mm -hmm. I, so I, I was ranting or railing about the fact that we overreach on, I'll use a different term than that because we have reach and frequency, but we, we overcommit to the metric of acquisition almost at all costs, especially with investors. When I look at tech firms who work with that, that is the Holy grail, which I'm taking issue with. But we do need to acquire customers. So you're talking about the cost of that. Christine set that up. Craig, just before we went on, you were talking about some of those cost shifts. So let's say we have to acquire customers at the beginning. The presumption that online is the only way to do it, I think we should take a peek at. And Craig, you were talking about some metrics or some uh, figures that may shed some light. Yeah, I mean, some of it might be anecdotal, but uh, in some cases, some retailers that have tried to acquire you know, consumers online found that their expenditure to do so, say through Google AdWords, for example, uh, and I guess other ads as well, um, ended up being more money than actually, say, having a lease for a physical store and having traffic generated by people walking by the physical storefront. So. Uh, I do think that some businesses now are, are looking at this, you know, online as the answer is not necessarily being the answer. And in some cases, definitely not being the answer, I think, from a cost perspective. And then on top of that, uh, uh, being, you know, social media bombarding people uh, with, with messaging. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing even big companies now advertising on, 
on Instagram. One of the bizarre ones was Bijan of Beverly Hills. I, I, I thought that was a sign they were going downhill, but I've seen some other brands doing it too. So again, trying to get to that consumer uh, through whatever channel that they can, it's, it's costing money and then retaining them. Well, we'll, we'll keep talking about that. <laughs> that's, a, that's another challenge altogether. I think the influencer piece too has a big part to play in this because, you know, for me in particular, if there's something, someone that I'm following or that I like, and they're suggesting something, you know, whether it's the better product or not, they've spent time, they know the brand, they've done some research. Yes, I know they're most likely paid for it, but at the same time, I think they're curating something that maybe is interesting to me. And so I'd have more tendency to kind of follow or be interested in the brands that they might be promoting. And, um, you know, and I think it's, it's an interesting one because I think we all look at them and watch them and see what they're doing. We do know most of them are paid. Sometimes it's announced, sometimes it's not, but they're still like curating a lifestyle and they're sharing brands and things that they're interested in and that they like, um, and sharing great stories around it. And I think, um, we're, we're going to see more of that, like TikTok videos more. I, I mean, I, a lot of people are still doing things on YouTube where there's more opportunity for them to talk about their brands and what they're doing and the things that they like or don't like. So I, I don't think that's going away. I think that'll integrate itself into retail at some point um, where we'll be able to kind of tap into that. Yeah, you know, if I don't, Gary, if you don't mind, I'm gonna pick on you for a second is, you know, the product journey, right? That plays a big part in how the customer perception and the advocacy builds. And you, would you mind laying in a little bit of groundwork on that for us? Yeah, in terms of things like um, the last mile, the actual getting it to people's homes and uh, to a point of convenience. Uh, it, as I listen to this and reflect on other conversations around the, the cost of uh, acquiring customers, it's, it's big in itself. And then, by the way, the very um, way that we have in the past distributed product, which was normally in big pallets where big boxes opened up at the store, Put on the shelf and the customer comes in and does their own fulfillment their, their own selection their own payment and then their own last mile all that has to be now wrapped up into this whole discussion about digital so i think that when we when we look at digital in isolation we look at the the digital brands that have started even uh, digital natives they are motivated to to get going you know to to david's point you know they sell one, one each, and suddenly it's 10 each the next day, 100 each, 1,000 each, and they get up to a certain level. And then they go, I think we have to employ some people around here and probably pay ourselves some decent wages. And all of a sudden, one is they, they can't seem to scale their business beyond their garage. Uh, and secondly, it becomes very expensive for them. And guess what? They think, actually, it'd be better to go to a store. And this is my thoughts on that, that... The store has a lingering image in a person's mind. You know, I go to the Canadian Tire Store or I go to the Home Depot or, you know, Loblaws or whatever. And so it's there. It's physically there. It's in my mind. It's an indelible print. If I get something on my Facebook or LinkedIn or on YouTube or whatever it might be, an advert appears, do you know what? I'm, I'm waiting for the skip to happen. So no matter how much you try and bombard me with a message, I am absolutely going to refuse to accept it. It is not going in. I don't want any elaboration. I don't care about your 
your great graphics, your products, your proposition, anything. I'm waiting to get to the skip. So if we, if we think about that, that wouldn't it be logical for digital natives to say, oh, we want to have stores because we're close to our customer, when actually I think what's driving that is more of a economic model said, actually, that didn't work. Let's go here because traffic, as long as we get a decent location, traffic's passing. And the fact that they see us, we're not paying them to see us. That's just our you know, brand or you know, livery or whatever. But it may create the right type of impression in their mind that they may come back in. We may not be able to influence that, but they will come back in. And they may actually shop something. And when they're in the shop, in the store, we may be able to give them the kind of experience that ties up the, the image, the product, our service, and we can build a business better from, from that kind of a, a model. Every, every uh, perspective, though, is biases, Gary. And I agree. I mean, you're, you're putting a lot of sense to how the whole thing becomes a holistic model and not just a digital acquisition model. But I remember talking to some analytics guys who were very senior in, I won't name the brand, but it was kind of high-flying, online only, doing really well. And we had this chat and they were proudly saying they have no idea who their customer is other than they have a customer ID number. And then they can look at what pattern they're generating on the, on the site and what they're clicking to. And they, and they can just continue to put things out uh, that feed into that profile that's sort of internally generated, but they didn't really know who they were and, you know, where they live and what they're interested in beyond that. They were proud of that. And they said, really, it's all a numbers game. It's uh, the more exponential number of eyeballs you can put in leads. So in, in your example, all those pop-ups, you, you just, you want it enough that you get a few clicks. And out of those few clicks, you get a few, I'm going to start putting something in the cart. And then someone will actually pay for that thing in the cart. So that's what, that's what you're kind of up against. And in, in a theoretical world where everyone on the planet, 9 billion people, or your customer base, and it, it can take you years before you even exhaust it, is really alluring. But I just don't see the world working that way. And, and those guys in particular plateaued probably yeah. a year after that conversation. It feels like the dartboard and they're going so broad and trying to get everybody when really you need to focus in on that center and be really truly sure of who your consumer is, what they're all about, how they're shifting and changing and then following them on the journey, because I think often companies will do all the research to come up with their consumer target and then they do it and then they walk away from it. And five years later, like, where is yeah. that target? It's changing. Like you've always got to be invested. And I think the best companies that really connect to their consumers are constantly looking at that, redefining it. It's not like they're changing the consumer completely, but they're on that journey with them because if they're 19 years old, when they start, and then they're 45, like, you know, that's a different proposition to a brand. Uh, but I, you know, I find it kind of shocking that you wouldn't be more targeted on your consumer because how are you going to get any kind of insight into what's working or not working with your brand or your product? Um, well, just, well, the analytics guys will say it's all in the, it's all in your analytics dashboard, right? You, know, yeah. you, can, you do an AB test and you see this works and you don't know, you don't have to know why. And that's it. You know, I guess I'm biased because I like to know. I, when I was a little kid, I'd ask why all the time, drove my parents nuts. I want to know why something's working or not working and then address it. Um, 
but yeah, and and I, I, you know, I think the world as it's evolving is actually a mashup of all these things. I do see, I, I'm being a little negative about that, but I actually see some brilliance in it as well to a point, but I don't think that could be purely the only story that that brand adheres to. And to your point, Christine. Yeah, I mean, the art and science always have to be there. Like you can't have one without the other, but um, yeah, I just... I think when it comes to retaining a consumer and we all know when we've had bad experiences with brands and we walk away from something, um, there's, you know, they don't connect with you. They don't understand you. They don't understand your frustrations. Um, and I think going through COVID right now, that has been a real strain on a lot of brands. And, you know, I think we've all talked about this before where you've done a return and they didn't do it right. Or like, there's just a lot of things that we're all dealing with and the brands that go above and beyond to really um, give you the best experience possible, even when they have screwed up. Um, those are the ones that I think consumers will be loyal to and loyal to down you know, the road. It's okay if you screw up, as long as you do something to kind of fix it and help move forward. But the ones that just are like, doesn't matter and you know, you're lost, that, that's a negative in my opinion. And you know, consumers are not gonna give a brand five chances. Not at all. So, George, George, I got one for you, though, because you come out of an equities background and um, you deal in that world a lot. So let's say you have a founder. They've got something. It's got traction a couple of years in and they're making they're, they're generating their sales and they're on this kind of hockey stick a little bit. But they need money invested to kind of scale this up. There does seem to be a bias in the investor community, and it might be because they want a quick exit. But for them to focus on uh, customer acquisition metrics and, and, and that side of it, as mm -hmm. opposed to building, as Gary would describe, a holistic business that might take a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, am I right in, in seeing it that way or am I off base? No, you're right in seeing it that way. I mean, look, uh, uh, you know, if you're, you've got a platform <clears throat> that um, A is disruptive. It's unique, it's different. Uh, it can take share from an existing part of the segment of the market. Um, and it, no one, there isn't a lot of other players doing that. Then you could raise capital fairly easy as provided that you can prove that the long-term growth there is there. Um, it's not difficult, you know, but I mean, there you see some of these guys coming back for second or third rounds you know, of raising capital because they've got a concept that needs continued funding to, to get to that growth level before they can become an IPO. So if, so I'll, I'll jump on Wayfair as an example, and I've, I've sort of read where they've now kind of broken even, but for many years, they would headline conferences. They were talked about by everyone in the business media as the future of furniture retailing. They were losing money the whole time, but they were fixated on, you know, customer acquisition, one-time buyer acquisition, at whatever cost, didn't matter. Where are they at now from that point of view, from an investor point of view? Do you think some of the early guys are, are just glad are, are out now, but now lamenting it because it's still going up? It almost seems like a bit of a Ponzi scheme to me. I guess I'm probably, we're going to get sued now, but uh, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's almost <laughs> like we got to keep driving this up. We drive those metrics up, our share price will go up as opposed to what happened to, hey, we've got these amazing customers and they're loving us and they're buying more and they're, coming back more often and buying more, the, the number of items in each basket is growing and all those sorts of things. Well, you um, know what, let me, let me counter that with this. What if restoration hardware does never builds another store, right? 
They never build another store. Uh, maybe they even downsize. They won't, but Mills says they downsize their store account and they focus completely on e-commerce, right? Their store, the existing stores become showrooms. Okay, how different are they than, than Wafer? Yeah, but I think Restoration Hardware knows how to build a quality product at a price point that make it, 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 make, it has margin on that product and the whole model works economically. But it's also I'm not convinced Wayfair's economic model would work if it was viewed from the lens of a traditional retailer yeah, as opposed I, I to agree, but I, I don't think I think Wayfair is a different model right it's one of those things where you throw everything on the wall and see what's yeah. well they're okay but that's what we're talking about today right? a little bit right it's not it does not feel curated to me whereas restoration hardware is a curated experience you go in you know what you're getting you have the feeling and the aura of the brand as a consumer like yeah it's just I find Gary. I find really frustrating to show up personally. Gary. This is, I think kind of, is, we're in a continuum. And at one end, to Christine's point, we've got highly proposition curated, clear propositions. And at the other end, we've got Amazon. And we've got a lot of clustering up this end, which is just throw a bit of product, throw a lot of product out. Let's do some marketplace. We must scale this somehow. We must have more products. Must there, must there be more country or more territories? Somehow we're going to break even. Well, Amazon, they've been going for 25 years. They've got the smartest minds in the world. They've got the best AI in the world. They've got the best data in the world. As a retailer, they don't make any money. Guess what? There's a, there's a visual path to success. Yep. It's Amazon. Well, and, and to Gary's point, right? I mean, I, I know people who shop from Wayfair and I think we have to differentiate between what the customer thinks of Wayfair and what, what experts think of Wayfair. Yeah. You need to separate those two. Yeah. Right? The customer- well, I, I know customers love it because yeah. they're getting stuff cheap, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. But, but, yeah, if, but I, I, if I had a furniture store and for whatever reason, I had people throwing money at me to keeping it afloat, and I just set prices below what my cost of production was, I could keep customers happy too. Mm. I don't have the luxury of that. I'm not knocking, I think it's brilliant that they've created the model. Uh, but my issue is not whether they can scale it. They may be at a point now where they might, it's almost like a winner take all proposition. Like you bet big and you either win hugely or you lose. And I don't see much in the middle. But, I, but imagine all the others that are coming up out there saying, well, we'll just copy Wayfair. Um, and you're seeing it all over the place, every product category. And you're seeing it with influencers, right? Every influencer has got millions of viewers um, or listeners or whatever it might be. There's so many more that just skim, skim around the edges. And uh, that's my worry because I think there are a lot of good founders and brand uh, people coming up. And I just, I worry that they get too caught up in this, what might be a myth um, with a little bit of, great myths have a little truth around them. And I think that's, that's the issue we're, we're looking at. You know, you've got to get, first of all, what they sell. I mean, if we step back a little bit, look at Amazon. I mean, they own the book business. 50% of all books sold are sold through Amazon today, right? It's an, it's an astonishing number. Right, so they've they they I mean they systematically have destroyed the book industry, the bookstores industry very easily, right? But at the end of the day, it cost them a lot of money to get there. 
okay? Same thing, now you've got furniture. These are huge fixtures. It costs a lot of money to be able to store this stuff and, and, and ship it. It's very different than books, but at the same time, so the model will take longer and it might look like it's not a viable business, but at the end of the day, it could take, it will take longer to get there. And if they've finally, I didn't see that part, David, but if they finally broken even or made, turned a, pro, a dollar, it could be an accounting error, by the way, yeah. uh, turn a dollar in profit, um, great, good for them because the market's going to love it. I, I, I agree. It's just that not everyone's going to be able to re replicate that path. Just, just as a sort of like context, they were, they, they were, what was the results? I think they sold. Nine billion last year or the year before. That's right. It in 2019, it was about nine billion. It cost them 10 billion. Therefore, they lost a billion. And and if you look at the scratch of service, they they overspent every quarter by quarter of a billion, and that was directly attributed to advertising spend. Now, in the pandemic, even with everybody shut down, locked away, could only order stuff, they still struggled, and all of a sudden they got a spurt. But you don't go from losing that level of money to breaking even, even making a small profit even, without some major structural change uh, in the proposition, in how they organize, in, in the assortment. A whole range of things need to change for that to happen. And I don't think they did. I think they just got lucky. And George may be onto something. It may be something that washes out in the next quarter saying, oops. I think COVID has a lot to do with it. I mean, you think for a lot of people who are sitting at home bought furniture, desks, lights, lamps. You think about it, a lot of small furniture pieces were bought. I'm sure Wafer benefited from that. And they and it, and it signifies, it identifies how much volume they need in order to get there. And I, I want to go back to Craig for a second because, Craig, you track so many different brands right now in the moment. But you tend to, your own personal taste, you gravitate some of the better, the better ones, even if they're small. Tell me how many of those are really not paying attention to the quality of their solutions and their products. Like I think most of the ones we talk about, there's, a, there's almost a, a, an internal dedication. I don't want to use Dyson as an example, but because we haven't spoken about it. But in, from your perspective, is there not also a fixation in making better products as opposed to simply driving the digital growth? You would hope so, um, right? <laughs> Unless I it's, that's extremely value-based. I mean, I, I went on a bit of a shopping rampage on, on Instagram earlier on in the pandemic. It was new to me and, and I bought some absolute crap uh, that you know was a one-time purchase I would never buy again. And and I found that fascinating. So I think some of the best brands that I know, uh, and I know some smaller ones and I know them personally, uh, for sure, they want, well, they want everything to be impeccable, but they want their quality to be up there. Uh, they want their, their shoppers to like want the product and then come back and buy more. You know, that that's important. Getting that consumer to make repeat purchases. Uh, well, one young man that I interviewed um, uh, has a, a skincare line. I gotta, I'm actually going to order some today because I actually really like it. I, I'm, this is not an ad, but um, subscription uh, services. So customers can order once per month. I don't think I would use enough to get one bottle per month. I'd probably end up giving it away, but then you get a discount when you do that. But having a high quality product and then 
you know, getting consumers into perhaps even subscribe to get it seems to be a model that's working. And I forget what the number was, but something like 60% of the customers become repeat customers under the subscription model because they get $10 off on a product that would be $59 regular and 49 with a subscription. Again, it's good enough that I'm going to order it again. I really like it, but um, but, but yeah, yeah, I mean, that's sort of a long winded way of saying that, uh, and really generally, you know, the best brands out there are, are doing this and hopefully getting good quality and not getting what I got on Instagram where I won't be ordering it again. And one other thing I was thinking of too, uh, funny enough is just with, during the pandemic doing certain things like microwaving food. And I would look at something I get from the Loblaws, like say a PC brand for president's choice or something. And I was saying, well, this plastic doesn't come off properly or, you know, like it's just little things that might cost two or three cents to fix, but I'm not going to buy that again. And, and that's not necessarily me not shopping at a retailer, but it's me not buying a product anymore at that retailer that they're selling and maybe they're private labels. So uh, I think that's huge. I mean, a retailer really needs to get it all right. They, they need to get the consumer. They need to make them happy and keep them. And they need a product that, you know, is going to be something that people are going to want and isn't going to fall apart. I, I bought some towels and stuff on Wayfair over the holidays when I got a new place and, and they were terrible uh, to the point that I'm thinking, you know, what, what's Wayfair selling? I could have gotten better ones at Dollarama. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but Craig, this is the whole point, right? Like they're getting, now you're, you're in their data because you're Craig times however millions or thousands, hundred thousands of buyers. And that's what they're, that is their KPI as opposed to where you're at now. I, I, I don't know if it matters to them, although maybe it should, but they're going to chase the next first time buyer. That that's, that's the drug of that approach. And it, and it runs out at some point, which is you're always having to get a new buyer. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on where you're doing business, you know, you're only going to have so many buyers, right? I mean, the world, I, I Googled it. There's 7.8 billion people in the world, apparently. I uh, said nine. So I don't know where that other, where they are, but that may be, okay. I like your, you, you're way more accurate than I am. Keep going. I think Fact there's, check, there's fact check here at the, the my workers hotel. we're talking about going through China, doing the work that other people don't want to do. No, I, I don't know. Maybe they're not counted, but um, yeah, I mean, in some cases, you're only going to have so many clients. I, I guess being online will open the market up more. But at the same time, even a retailer that's in Canada, how much are they going to be shipping globally? Uh, just, you know, customs, duties, the challenges around that. Uh, Canada has, I'd have to Google that, but probably around 38 million people. And uh, uh, again, you know, the, there's a lot of people, but you're competing with a lot of businesses. And, uh, you know, it's not a big population in terms of the world. And, you know, a lot of businesses doing you know, in Canada aren't going to sell internationally just for some of those challenges that are there. You know, I'm, uh, I, I, I want to try and we've read a great discussion here, but I want to make, make one more comment. Every site I've been on to un better understand the cost of customer acquisition, the one statement that every digital marketing firm makes is that the biggest reason behind digital marketing strategies and their failures is not enough financial resources. Everyone makes the same comment. So uh, th that makes me, you know, having all this operational background, makes me question, you know, how legitimate then is all of this in terms of in its ability to be impactful and get that ROI, right? I mean, oh, you got to keep putting more money into the slot machine until you hit jackpot. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what there, I think all of this needs to be more professionalized versus where it is today. And that may take time, but I, I, I think the experimentation 
is going to you're going to find that this exploration experimentation that retailers and brands are going through you know, young and old ones uh, it's going to wear them thin and it's it needs to become a little more structured and disciplined because right now get online get on social media you know you've got your content already created you paid for that you're going to post it boost it and then you know you're going to spend your your return on that is going to be based on how much you spend and how long you're going to run it for right and you got to get return on it. So it's going to cost you $1,500 or $2,000 to, to run a campaign for a week. Plus maybe cost you $500 to do a video if you're a, mid, a small or mid-sized retailer, right? So now you need 2,500 bucks. And if you sell products and your average sale is 30 bucks, that's a lot of transactions, right? Can I just put a slightly different spin on this? And it goes as simple as this. If we believe the majority of independent uh, retailers before COVID uh, weren't online. Uh, and if they saw there was benefit of being in online, and we've got Shopify, so we had the, the tools available to us, wouldn't they already have been on Shopify? Wouldn't they already have, you know, a last mile e-commerce proposition to the marketplace? The fact that, you know, in the lockdown, they had their revenue went from whatever to zero very quickly. They, it was a mad scramble to get onto uh, Shopify or another, or get some um, media company to help them with a website that could take orders and fulfill them. They did that because they're nimble. They did that because they knew they had to. Imagine the situation back to 2019 that they'd already worked this out, but it didn't make sense to them. But we've got these rather large organizations who think, oh, we've got our bricks and mortar. Now we've got to bolt on our e-commerce because I think that's what the market wants. So I, I just wonder if we're all falling, not us collectively, but if big retailers are, are falling into a trap of, um, wanton dumbness because they're, they're telling that it's like an echo chamber well walmart do it so we better do it kind of thing whereas the small independent retailers have really worked out we don't need to do it you know as long as we don't get a lockdown we're fine we're, we're, we're surviving our, you know we have service we have curated product we know we know our customers we may not have their specific number and that's something which i would encourage them to do somehow yeah. but they didn't they weren't in widespread wide-scale e-commerce operations. It wasn't how they saw their business would, would, was running. I want to make sure that my perspective is clear, though. I'm not saying roll back the clock on e-com or digital, because no. I think they're wonderful. Actually, I think when they work, hmm. it, it we're so far light years ahead of where we were five, 10 years ago. It's more about the chase, as George and Christine frame this, sort of that chase for just gathering the data points and, and without thinking about the big picture. But I think the idea of selling online is a, is a must. So I don't know, Gary, if you're saying if, if, if it's about the selling online, but when there's big retail, just trying to bolt on social campaigns, just bolted on in a disjointed way to what they're already doing. I don't know how effective that is. Yeah. I think that's a lot of that. To argue. Yeah. yeah. And you know what, David and Gary, I, I would also say that before you can really say you can sell online, you have to be visible online. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a there's a chicken and egg thing here happening, and that if you, you you're not you're gonna you may get some some 
ancillary sales that come your way. But if you're not a visible brand or, or a very highly recognized brand, I don't know how you break through this without spending a great deal of money. What I do like about Craig's story is if, if someone does pay attention to their product quality and actually cares about forming relationship with their shoppers, uh, there is an amazing opportunity through those channels to circumvent the big buyers, you know, the cloud of the big, the big buying that has to happen if they were going to try and scale wholesale only. And so, you know, it's going to, it may cost them. I guess the other aspect, George, is, is it just fire the money out or are there more clever ways? Like, I think when you're the first ones doing something, everything's novel and it's pretty cool. Then everyone copies whatever worked for you. And yep. I feel like we're in a copycat era right now. I'll give you a great example of that. Email marketing versus text marketing, right? So email has been really clamped down. You can't, I mean, you can buy email lists and each country has different rules behind them, right? But in Canada, you, for example, you cannot be using an email. You, don't, you have to have somebody's permission to email them, right? And give them the option to opt out. At the same time, because of that struggle, right? Now you hear about text marketing being texting and using that to, to reach customers and that they respond very quickly. I kind of laugh at it, by the way, because we were doing that in China in 2007, right? Uh, so now we've got this whole new panacea that we've discovered uh, 14 years later. Uh, but I don't, I think that eventually will catch up to you too. To your point, David, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's just a fad and uh, it, it'll wear out pretty quick, right? Because everybody else will be jump on it. And then the consumer is going to go, I've had enough. I've had 82 text messages today. I don't yeah. want anymore. Yeah, that, and well, I deal with research companies as well. And I always felt that was part of their issue was everyone would want to form their own research panels. And then, you know, once everyone's doing it and you're getting their inbox filled, the quality goes down. You can't help it. So I'm, I'm curious what the next breakthrough is going to look like. I wonder if it'll be streaming shopping. I know that we've talked about that before and it's coming on board, but uh, uh, for example, as we're recording today, um, in about 18 minutes, uh, Style Democracy is going to come on with its first streaming shopping presentation and uh, they're bringing in uh, people to showcase products and it's, it's kind of interesting in terms of, of a marketing gimmick because it merges that influencer potentially even quite often with uh, the interaction of, uh, of a product and the uh, um, you know, grabbing the consumer and their attention through, I guess, storytelling and demonstration and education. So it creates a bit of an experience. It's, it's kind of interesting to see where it's going. Nordstrom's doing it, of course, at a bigger level and uh, mm -hmm. uh, retail's changing. Yeah. We haven't even talked about influencers as a retail channel yet, have we? But that'll be another day, maybe. That'll be another day, yeah. We should bring one on. We should bring one on. I, I know one. I'm helping them get some business. And for, those, for those listening in, like, I know it sounds like there's the industry veterans crapping on the modern era. And I don't, I don't think it is that I think, I think we see a lot of good in it, but uh, we're also cognizant of the fact that you can over uh, focus on what you think is working today without understanding why it's working at your own peril. And I think that's the issue. I, I, I think for any young brand listening to this, you've got to find a way to mature along with this and realize it's about that relationship with the customer, not, not just chasing metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Customer's key. The relationship's super important. 
Guys, thanks for a great conversation. Um, thank you for joining us today on the Business of Retail podcast um, with uh, my fun, fabulous group of um, cohorts. So um, I'd like to thank everyone, Gary Newbery, George Minnakakis, Craig Patterson, David Ian Gray, and myself, Christine Cowan. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please check us out at uh, thebusinessofretail.ca on our website. Or you can go to um, your social channels, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Business of Retail. And uh, you can also listen to us on your favorite audio source, Spotify, Apple, etc. Thanks so much for listening. You have been listening to The Business of Retail podcast, an unflinching strategic alternative to the conventional industry discourse. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please go to www.thebusinessofretail.ca. Dot .ca